0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.
1: Does this seem familiar to anybody?
2: It's not Pulp Fiction, it's not Reservoir Dogs. It's not natural-born killers.
1: You got that?
0: It's Plump Fiction. A film of tender romance. How do I look? Nice. Penetrating drama.
2: And hard-hitting action. Plump Fiction. It's a
0: parody. She's got a tattoo.
2: It's actually a little map, see? It points away to the
1: nearest burger world.
0: It's a comedy.
1: <laughs> I hear you used to strip.
0: It's a movie.
1: It's all messed up. It doesn't make any sense. I know. I love it. You do? Who cares what comes when? That's so mainstream. As long as it's bloody and violent. Maxwell! We're going to shoot this!
0: See Plump Fiction. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Mike Sullivan.
3: Hey, so you really didn't like uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, did you, huh?
0: Also back in the booth is Mr. Chris Gore. Thanks for having me on, Mike. This week we are discussing the parody film Plump Fiction. The film is based loosely on Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery's Pulp Fiction from 1994. It stars Paul Danello and Tommy Davidson as a salt-and-pepper hitman team. Danello has been asked by his boss to take out his boss's wife, Mimi Hungry, played by Julie Brown, to show her a good time. Their adventure brings them in contact with a handful of other Tarantinos as well as other independent movies of the day. I'm not sure if there's much to spoil about Plump Fiction, but we will do our best to do so. So, Mike, I'm very curious. When was the first time you saw Plump Fiction, and what did you think?
3: I, uh, I saw this actually when it was released, and I saw it in theaters. Uh, I, I saw it in, yeah, I saw it in Ontario, California, and it was playing in an outlet mall. And um, oddly enough, like it, it, there was a short that came with it. It was um, Swingblade. And it was like, um, remember like they're doing that mashup back then where there was like uh, movie A is movie B and it was like swingers and sling blade. And that was a short before it. It was just me in the audience and like two 13 year old kids and about like 20 minutes into it, like the 13, the two like 13 year olds just get up and they leave. And instead of like just leaving the normal way, they decide to leave like during like the exit, like right underneath the screen. So, like, when they opened the door, you couldn't see the movie at all. Like, it just, it was just like, you know, they just filled the theater with light, and it was, it was probably the best part of the movie when these kids left.
0: How about you, Chris? You know, what's weird is I
4: thought I saw this movie when it first came out. I'm watching, and, and, and by that I mean, like, my memory uh, that this movie was well publicized. I'm a fan of, of spoof comedies. But frankly, I watched this. Mere moments before the podcast began, because I found it free on YouTube. And that is the first time I've seen the movie is me sitting going, oh, wait, we're about to record a podcast. I should watch this movie. I'm watching it going. Oh, I don't remember ever seeing this. I do remember vividly the trailer. And I remember the poster for this film, because, of course, it, you know, parodied the poster of the original Pulp Fiction. But um, I had never seen this film until moments before this podcast started recording, I, I, I finished watching it. And so, uh, my memories are very
0: vivid and fresh. I remember the poster or the video box for this really well with, uh, d- uh I almost said Downtown Julie Brown. Oh my God, what a huge mistake. Uh, with <laughs> right. Julie Brown on the cover there. It was right around the time, I want to say, of like Silence of the Hams. It seems like maybe like those two movies kind of went together as far as sitting on the video shelf at the same time. Yeah, oh yeah. I, I don't yeah. remember when I actually sat down to watch this. And I actually sat down for sure to watch it just a month ago. I was doing a, um, audio commentary for a podcast on pulp fiction because I, I just get tired of people talking shit about stuff. And it's just like, Oh, I think I might be able to add to this conversation and actually bring some new light to it. I don't know why. So I'm just like, Oh, well, I don't think I've ever seen plump fiction. So I just decided to do it and sometimes I regret the decisions that I make. This is an interesting time capsule of what independent movies were like in 1996. And there are there are a couple things in here where I was just like, okay, I think I'm getting the reference here. I'm not 100%, but the comedy is so broad that it you're pretty sure to get stuff. Like, I don't remember, or I don't know how many people remember the piano right off the bat, but the piano plays a pretty major part in this. I mostly just remember naked Harvey Keitel, but then I'm thinking maybe Bad Lieutenant as well.
3: Because there's a joke in that later with Nell, where she she's like uh, Liam Neeson's penis, which I thought he was in the piano showing his penis. Like, was there a movie where... Liam showed his penis in the 90s that it qualified as a joke?
0: He was in Nell, but I don't remember if there was like a skinny dipping scene in that movie. Oh,
3: okay, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah.
0: I actually laughed out loud when they pulled off the Gimp's mask and it was Nell underneath there. We start with Bunny and Bumpkin, and Bumpkin is played by Dan Castanaleta. I always fuck up his name. Basically, he's Homer Simpson. Yeah, it's close enough. Bunny's being played by Sandra Bernhard. We very clearly spell out a lot of things that are going to happen in this movie, and this is basically the diner scene. But there's a whole lot of other stuff going on in here, and yeah, we've got bumpkin. I kept, I kept thinking that they're just going to call him Bump or something other than bumpkin.
3: I don't know why they did that. It just it feels like so cracked magazine. That like they, like Oliver Stone is Gulliver Stone, and then like why didn't they just go with the actual names?
0: If you don't do that, you don't get funny things like Jimmy Nova.
3: Okay, right, right, right.
0: Or Candy Cane. But yeah, like I said at the beginning, this is like a whole mashup of all of these Tarantino movies plus all of these independent films, and they do an interesting thing by setting a lot of the independent film stuff here at this opening diner that they're doing, and it's like a theme diner. So then it actually eliminates the need for Jack jackrabbit slims later on, and they just come back to the same diner, which also saves you a lot of cost when it comes to securing locations.
4: This film, first of all, almost every joke is a groaner, right? I mean, every joke, you're just groaning over from the name choices to, you know, saying Gulliver Stone instead of Oliver Stone to just the clearly super low-budget nature of it. There's some decent cast in there. I love seeing Paul Provenza as the director. Um, It was cool to see him in that bit part. My God, like, it's just, it's not just, you know, a parody of sort of the indie films at the time. It's also, Forrest Gump is not an independent film, but it was out. It's sort of that, you know, whatever is sort of in the air in the zeitgeist is, it sort of worms its way into this movie. But oh my God, is it, it so hard to find laughs? I'll just say that this movie has not aged well. And it just it just oh, reminded me, oh, oh, oh my God, I I can't wait to watch Pulp Fiction again just to
3: get the bad taste out of my mouth. Some of my favorite dated moments from that was, um. there's a reference to like when, um, and I forgot about this completely, when that guy just started shooting at the White House, the Bill Clinton, do you remember this? There's a scene yeah. in like, there's a scene, like, in the um, the Gimp scene where the French guy, I don't know why he's French, they, where he's going, uh, do you think you could wave your gun around here as if you're outside the White House? And I, I'm like, that's a reference to something. And then I remember, oh, yeah, there was a string of guys during Clinton's presidency that would just, like, walk up next to the White House and just fire at the White House. And I just I totally forgot about that. And then there's another one where it's, the other tag team is called the Brothers McMullen. And I'm like, oh yeah, Ed, was it Ed Burns? That Ed Burns movie, yeah. the Brothers McMullen?
0: Yeah. yeah, I remember that one getting a lot of play because he used to work for Entertainment Tonight as like an intern or something. So they like just latched onto that, like, hey, look it, we have an independent filmmaker that used to work for us, and they had like a huge thing about the <laughs> Brothers McMullen on on Entertainment Tonight. It's like, really? Okay, Tommy Davidson, uh, who. People may remember as Cream Corn from Black Dynamite. He was really good in in Living Color, but he's not like a household name. It's kind of weird. He kind of slips in and out of that Sammy Davis Jr. impersonation. Like, I thought he was going to do that the entire time, and thank God he didn't. You can see the choices of, of the cast just, I don't know, maybe this will be funny.
4: They're kind of trying things out. Um, yeah, and just yeah. and and just it landing with a thud. I mean, I mean the one that, the one thing you get from the ending of the film, which shows a lot of, uh, I'm saying beyond the ending of the film. I mean, the running time is is like what seventy seven minutes, which any movie with a running time under eighty minutes, I'll watch it. I'll I'll sit through it. Why not? But you see that they clearly had way more fun in the outtakes. They're just go- They were having so much fun, and la- I would have rather seen a movie about all these people sitting around goofing on each other, uh, you know, rather than the actual movie that they ended up
0: making. There were times where I was wondering if the outtakes were actually staged. <laughs> One of the outtakes in particular, when they're going down the hallway and and they just they kind of
4: are bumping into each other, that seems completely staged. Like. Look at all the fun we're having. But boy, it's, uh, it's, uh, whew, man, hasn't aged well. I think a spoof parody film is really hard to make in terms of just, you know, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about it later. I don't want to derail the conversation, which is generally my specialty on a podcast. But, um, uh, you know, I made a parody film myself and, you know, in similar vein that I think was made, I, I hate to say, seeing this and not, I'm not saying my film is any better than this or worse, but I I, I tried to be a little bit more ambitious by including animation and song numbers and just a a little bit more of an ambitious production than this. It's hard to do. I mean, I would say that the, the, the parody films, you know, Mel Brooks are the ones that are, they, that have stood the test of time, you know, everything from high anxiety, spoofing, you know, uh, the the beloved films of Alfred Hitchcock and, even silent movie and, and blazing saddles. Oh my God, you could not make blazing saddles today. There is no way. But, but those movies were about something other than the parody of a genre or, 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 or whatnot. That was sort of the, the parody was the setting, but there was an actual movie here, the, you know, with plump fiction, the parody is all there is. It's not a movie about anything else other than we're going to spoof some scenes or movies you probably remember. But there's uh, also, no other la- other layers to it, whereas Mel Brooks was so good about not only getting you to care about the characters and completely forget the setting of the film, but also um, having actually something to say about um, society, politics, uh, romantic relationships. I mean, and plus the fa- the performances. So it's like I feel like Mel Brooks is like the sort of the best of it. And this is definitely near well the bottom.
3: Also, I got to say, like, Mel Brooks avoided, and I may be wrong about this, but I feel like he avoided topical gags. Like, he wasn't doing bits about Agnew. You know, I mean, a lot of, like, parody films, like, you know, like, from, like, Plum Fiction, even before Plum Fiction, I think Mafia had topical gags. Like, you know, I think there was a Bill Clinton, like, I did not have sexual relations with that woman joke in it. And the thing is, like, and, and you see, like, even in the Friedberg and Seltzer movies where there's, like, Sanjaya jokes. You know, it, my question is, why is there topical humor in a movie? You know, like, why? It's like, if I went out and, like, you know, tattooed on my forehead, it's like, it's it's just something that's already sort of, like, old and not funny, and now it has a permanent place somewhere. I don't, I don't you know, it's just, why do something as disposable as topical gags in a movie?
4: It's Well, it's, it's lazy, let's just say that. I think it speaks more to television skits. I mean, this is I mean, this is why I think the film is so painful to watch um, is that is that, you know, this is done so much better on television when you see, you know, um, some of those SNL, SNL Saturday Night Live skits uh, do become classic, you know, um, but they're not always about just the let's spoof a thing. I think thats that's I, I just think that that's the low hanging fruit of comedy. I don't know. I mean, but again, here I am speaking as someone who's made a film that's in a similar vein, which I'm sure you guys are going to skewer me. So I'll just I'll just wait for that.
3: I'm I'm going to be nice. I'm going to be nice. I'm not <laughs> not skewering anybody. I'm going to be nice. Right.
0: You're skewer me all all you want. I can take it. I do actually really appreciate the Mickey and Mallory Knox ripoffs. A little bit goes a long way, but the. Pamela Adlon doing the Juliet Lewis impersonation. She's fucking spot on, man. She is amazing. Sounds just like Juliet Lewis, especially in that role. You just caught me and Nikki
1: here in the middle of some real important business. Ain't that right, baby? That's right, Daisy. Real important business. So I guess you'll just have to come back some other time.
0: I'm telling you. Now pick up!
4: That voice, her voice, was incredible. You're right. It was just dead on to like the sort of squeaky, throaty nature sure. of it. I mean, it was. she was probably the best in the whole cast next to uh, Dewey Brown.
3: What I, what I liked about Matthew Glaive, uh, who always plays like dicks in comedies. I think he's like in yeah. more serious stuff now. But uh, what he did with that is he, he played it a pretty good Woody Harrelson, but towards the end, it just basically turns into Don Knotts, which I, I kind of <laughs> like that.
0: <laughs> yeah and I actually liked when they break the fourth wall and grab the camera and they're just like no none of that like trippy shit anymore you know this is a straight story and talk about the Gulliver Stone kind of stuff, but I was like, okay, that's kind of nice. You know, some of the other moments of fourth wall breaking, I was like, well, okay. Yeah. I'm not really sure. I, I forgive this, but, but yeah, you're right. Julie Brown is the other one who does such a great job because she seems to be very into that character. She doesn't seem to be winking at the, at the camera all the time. She's like, this is my character and I'm going to play the shit out of this character.
3: She looks good as a brunette too. I just, I just got to say that. But I know it's like a very obvious wig, but she, it, it, it suits her being a brunette.
4: I think one of the most painful scenes is the is that diner scene where it's uh, the the menus based on independent films. Uh, you know, um, and I do think that they loosely used. I mean, uh, Natural Born Killers is not an independent film. I mean, that was distributed by Warner Brothers. So I think that they're a bit they're very loose in their interpretation of exactly what they're qualifying as an independent film and but that diner where where, uh priscilla queen of the desserts, is walking around the drag queen and just sort of introducing the menu
1: today's specials are listed on the back (gasps) oh what's a crying game appetizer well, we tell you it's an absolutely fabulous assortment of raw fish. Then we bring you a hot dog instead. Oh.
0: And the water roll platter?
1: That's just a cheese sandwich, but it costs $270. Mm.
0: You go ahead, Jimmy. I just can't decide.
1: All right. I'll just have the Woody Allen with an extra pickle. Thank uh, you. Uh, sorry, sir. That's our children's menu. You have to be underage to get the Woody. Oh.
4: I, I feel like it's one of those things where... The writers in the room writing this were high or drunk, thought it was hysterical. For them, it was. And I think the only way that this movie should have a rating that says you must be high or these are recommended six beers or, you know, whatever your mind altering preferred substance is, because I think the only way this comes off as being funny is if you're stoned and it's late at night.
0: Yeah, you're totally right about the looseness of the term. I mean, that they have a Waterworld sandwich on the menu. It's like, yeah, that's not really independent cafe fair, I would think. But looking for the cheap gag. Just it's
4: sort of, oh, that's one for movie geeks. You know, like, I understood that reference. But I do think that a lot of the stuff falls flat because it hasn't aged well. And also, I can't imagine this was ever funny at the time, you know, which... uh, wow i wish i you know what i really wish i had seen this it might have dissuaded me from actually making a, a, a parody movie i think uh
3: natural born killers was included because tarantino wrote the script or, or wrote one of the drafts of the script that's what i took away from that
0: yeah and that's why they have the reservoir nuns in there as well so that they can kind of tie all the Tarantino-verse together, if you will. I know that's kind of a new term that no one's ever used before, so I'm coining that term right here on the show. (laughs) It took me a minute to get the Reality Bites thing when they're dancing to my Sharona. I was just like, is that a Hal Hartley? No, it's not Hal Hartley. I was thinking of something else, and then finally I had to Google dancing to my Sharona in an independent film and came up with reality bites. I thought I had burned that entire film out of my memory.
3: I didn't even get that as a reference to tell you the truth. I didn't even, I didn't like, it didn't register as anything. Like I, I that, it. you know, I, I,
0: yeah, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to just go through this plot piece by piece because it's basically retelling Pulp Fiction. The big joke is that this is Based on the screenplay that Sandra Bernhardt has written, and she gives it to the Forrest Gump character, and he runs around with it and he keeps getting into accidents. And so the pages get up all mixed up, so they're making fun of the nonlinear storytelling. But it pretty much follows the exact same nonlinear storytelling <laughs> that Pulp Fiction did. So what are you going to do? But there are, I mean, there are some interesting bits to it, uh, but not necessarily yeah, overall, I don't necessarily think that this works as a whole. It's very inconsistent. Well, I guess that maybe the the one
4: consistent thing is it's consistently not funny for the entire thing. But with just little moments that I think are just, you know, really meant to satisfy movie geeks that pay attention to this stuff. I mean, it, it does sort of appeal to the, you know, very base level of humor. But I think that you've, you
0: really got to know these movies to actually get it. Did you notice how many Sound of Music references there were in, in this movie? Yeah, it was I, weird. I and it, I,
4: I feel like that was just bizarre. Like, why? Was someone a fan of Sound of Music? Whatever.
3: I didn't notice that, but I noticed all the zany reprisals of Hava Nagila. There were
0: a lot of those. <laughs> I never knew that Dick Dale did a version of Havana Gila until I sat through the credits. I was like, really? That was Dick Dale? It was really...
3: I, I didn't know that. I thought that was like just a riff. I didn't... It was actually Dick
0: Dale. Oh, wow. They definitely are trying to get their money's worth out of uh, Havana Gila. And then, yeah, there's a moment when Jules starts quoting uh doe a deer female deer and he does like the first three verses and it's like really and then there's a couple other things about people dressed as nazis or something and you know oh yeah they're doing a revival of uh of uh, the sound of music and oh and all the nuns i think the nuns also get mentioned with that
3: yeah 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 I, there, there are two things i liked about this movie i i, I want to just point out robert costanzo uh, I, I really liked him and his role. And I, I think the reason he, he's really good in it. And I think the reason why he's good in it is because he's not forced to do an impression. He's just playing a Robert Costanzo character. It's it's kind of awkwardly done. But, you know, I think even at this point, that intro to uh, Reservoir Dogs or the slow thing from Reservoir Dogs had been done to death. And they start out kind of like a straightforward parody of that, which is nuns, which just seems lazy. But then it just jumps into the monkeys theme, you know it just recreates the intro to the monkeys and I'm like that's that's because that's it's surprising because you think they're just gonna go through the whole thing with them walking, but then they just do like the monkeys intro and it's i mean it's kind of like family guy humor and it's awkwardly edited and but I don't know it was a, it was a bright spot for me I like that the monkeys parody uh, of the title sequence for the monkeys was
4: it, it was it was definitely a highlight but also just sort of again inconsistent because Right, Mike, yeah, you, mentioned yeah. early, you mentioned earlier that all the sound of music references. It's like I kind of feel like if you're going to do a parody, it should be as as much glue to that genre. So independent films and of a certain era. Uh, and I and I, I I just think that like if you're going to do that, I think those rules apply. And throwing out a reference that I don't know, like a 30 year old reference to the Monkey Show. I mean, nearly 30 years old from the time that that movie was made. Yeah. originally just seems off even though I, I you know i got that reference and i thought it was funny it just didn't it just seemed to the, the the rules they're playing fast and loose with the rules that they were i i would assume that they were setting up uh to do
0: to do a, sort of a tarantino parody the one thing that maybe you guys can help me out with is i didn't understand why he had to keep Mimi. Away from eating Mexican food, I I watched this twice now, and I still can't figure out why he needs to stop her from doing is that. Is that like a
3: blind date reference? Don't get her drunk. I don't. I don't know. Like I never really understood it either.
0: Yeah. No. Look. I, look. I. This is fresh in my
4: mind because I just watched it before we started recording. Watched the entire thing, and yeah, you're right. There is no like why. There's no rhyme or reason for not to. I mean, it's to give him something to do. I mean, I'm trying to remember if the Husband, you know, said don't have her eat Mexican food. I don't know. It just doesn't. Maybe that was something that was cut.
0: Because there's also that weird moment where she does eat a taco, then all of a sudden her hair changes. And I was like, okay. It gets bigger. Yeah, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I thought maybe she would become like a sex maniac or just completely unhinged or whatever. But yeah. Like I said before, the other real high point for me is the Nell parody. And I thought that they really captured that well. And I really appreciated, too, that Mimi can speak now because of her alcoholic mother that lived in Georgia. That was very nice.
1: Now, God, deal. God I ain't. But now, no lie. Deal. Eat, do it. No let me. a win. a win. a win. I ain't win. Me make sure little chick pay free ta-ta in a win. Oh! oh. <laughs> bala,
2: don't
0: let me like Bala, don't let How know. Help,
1: don't let like me Me mother, i call half from the south. Me own one in my family, to not let me Me, friend, don't let me Then Untie
0: me and my fra hand, and like can hip now.
4: Yeah, that that I, bit worked actually. And then when they when it went to subtitles, I love that. I I love I I just love a, a film where it's like there'll be a subtitled sequence.
3: I always enjoyed that. I, I didn't get that one scene with like Kevin Meany and Colleen Camp. And I know what it's it's making fun of. It's making fun of that scene. I, what, was it was Eric Stoltz the drug dealer in Pulp Fiction. That's that's what's okay. I don't understand, is it a sitcom, that scene, or is it like a Mike Douglas show type thing? Like, I don't, did they just add the laugh track because the scene wasn't working? Like, I didn't, I I don't understand what they were doing with that.
0: What I think they were trying to do was the scene from Natural Born Killers where it was Mallory and her family. Exactly. Yeah. But it didn't really, it didn't come through, obviously. Right, yeah, yeah. I do have to say it was very nice seeing Colleen Camp in this movie. I just watched the night before a house with a, a clock on its walls, and I always love seeing her show up in anything, and especially young Colleen Camp is always uh, very nice.
3: Yeah, smoking the Bandit Three—that's shocking. She's on that smoking the Bandit Three.
0: And I was also very happy to see Judy Tenuta, just as a very, very small role. But I just I miss seeing Judy Tenuta. I used to see her all the time on stuff, her and Emo oh, yeah. Phillips. And it's like yeah. some of my favorite comedians I don't see anymore.
3: Yeah, I just want to say something about Paul Donello. He's, he's not that good in this, because he's more of a writer. He, he worked on Stranger of the Candy. He was Joffrey Jelinek on Stranger of the Candy. And he was good on that because he's he's good at playing, like, broken men that are just trying to show that they're okay. But he's he's a better writer. Uh, he wrote. I think he was the head writer on The Colbert Report. And I, I think this was post because he did a sketch show with Amy Sedaris and Stephen Colbert on Comedy Central, uh, Exit 57. And I think this was right off the heels of that. And I guess he didn't know what he wanted to do at this point. So that's why he's in it. But he's a much better writer than a performer. That's that's. I just want to say my piece about Paul Danello.
0: He kind of reminded me of a younger at this time anyway, nineteen ninety six. A, a younger Bob Odenkirk. Like there was something about his yeah. voice. I think. Yeah,
3: yeah. The, the way he says "God damn it" too. It's like very Bob Odenkirk. I don't know if he says it in the movie, but yeah.
0: He seems like older person trapped in a younger person's body.
3: <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Sure. Yeah. You
0: know, like eighteen again.
4: I did like Jimmy JJ dynamite Walker coming in to get his wallet. I mean, it's, it's a dumb joke. I think he's completely misused, but just to see him pop in and leave was like, Oh wow. He got his day rate to come in and
0: say one, one or two lines. That was it. Yeah.
3: That actually was nice. Yeah. Yeah. The cheap motherfucker. wallet.
0: Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. And it was so nice that it wasn't a dynamite joke. I was like, Oh, please don't say dynamite. Please don't say dynamite. And Tim Kazerinsky as Priscilla, the Queen of the Desserts. I mean, I always appreciated Tim Kazarinsky from his very brief time on SNL, and then he would show up, what, he was like in some of the Police Academy movies?
3: Two, three, and four. Just Okay.
0: The, you know. I love the skit with him where he learns, I can't remember, I think it was him, in, where they found out that President Kennedy was shot.
3: Yeah, there was like a bunch of people they just found out in the 80s that Kennedy was shot. I actually remember that sketch, yeah, yeah.
0: All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with the writer-director Bob Coer, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages.
1: Hey, do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy in filmmaking, Nick Richards, in 2016 as a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. Premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films from Heather's, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future, Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself talking about his friendship with John G. Appleson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us and join the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and of course, SoundCloud. (laughs) I
0: am thrilled to introduce Ovid.TV, the new streaming service for arthouse films, documentaries, and international cinema. Described by the New York Times as a haven for indie gems, Ovid.TV features films such as Claire Denis' Trouble Every Day, Deborah Granick's Stray Dog, and Raul Ruiz's Time Regained. As a special introductory offer for Projection Booth listeners, you can save 50% off the first three months of your subscription. Just head on over to ovid.tv. That's OVID.tv. Sign up with the coupon code PODCAST and you'll get Ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. The offer expires August 31st, so act now. You'll have access to hundreds of films not available on any other platform, which you can start streaming on all of your favorite devices, such as Apple TV and my personal favorite, the Roku. Once again, go over to Ovid.tv, ovi sign up with the coupon code PODCAST, and you'll get Ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. Act now.
1: You know the girl from that. The, yes, the yes. The I know. Show exactly, on that. God, I know exactly um, who
4: you're talking about.
1: She has the hair. The the
4: hair was, it, but it was different. And she has the the, the the lips. She has the lips with the. Okay, yeah, wait. The, she, no, she was just okay. You've seen her in a million movies. You know. But, who the, I'm, but the one that, we're talking about the exact same person.
0: always suck as
1: bad as this but listen to me chris gore and anthony ray bench on the film threat podcast you got questions sometimes we have the answers i'm chris cooling from forgotten tv and you're listening to the projection booth the ultimate movie podcast
0: well i'm very curious how you decided to get into show business and was acting your first choice or what was yeah so i um
2: graduated college with a degree in um, dramatic literature and acting and so I was going to be a writer after and I went to uh, Circle in the Square Professional Theater School which is the place you get into if you can't get into Juilliard they're both really good schools and so uh, I did one year there and just because I was putting myself to college and through acting school. When they asked me back, I couldn't afford it. So I was chosen, you know, they whittle it down, and they chose me. And back then, I was like, I'm never going to do TV. I'm never going to do a film unless it's a really good film. And I'm only going to do stage. And that, you know, once the financial reality of that delusion cleared, I'm like, I'll do anything. But one of the things I did was I um, studied improvisational comedy. And I started taking classes with Kathy Kinney, who back then was not even a, really a blip on the map, but she became she was in the movie Arachnophobia, and then she became Mimi on the Drew Carey Show, and that was um, a big deal. So, but back before any of us were anything, we did improv. That became a huge passion, and so I taught for twenty-five. Years so I had the acting thing going on, and when I came out here, I was all you know I'm six five, and back in the day when I was acting, I was like two sixty and tattooed. So all the nice, funny Bob, the clever Bob, was not really captured on the screen when I got roles because I was uh, always the heavy, always the bad guy, always a turncoat. On television, I was spent many years in prison. A lot of times, a violent felon. Who you know? So my mom. And she used to say, What do you want? I'm like, Well, I probably don't want this. Watch this one, Mom. And then I say, okay, she's in the retirement community and they would watch T V and she's like, You're so awful, you're mean, you hurt people I'm like, That's what I'm getting paid to do. She goes, Why can't you play someone nice? But I also got to do some films. My last film was Race to Witch Mountain with The Rock. Um, and that was all good. But back when I was writing and I first got to Los Angeles I would write something and find a friend to direct, and the director inevitably dropped out, and then I would drop back and become the director and recast my roles, and I was just writing sketch comedy and stuff, and I was pretty pretty good at it, but uh, that's how I sort of got sort of, you know, started directing a lot more. And I was on a soap opera in a very minor role, but for four years. And I was very intrigued by what they had, which was a three-camera setup. And so on television today, I do mainly multi-cam shows, the occasional single camera. But uh, like last season, I did... Um, several episodes of The Connors, the spin-off from Roseanne, and that's my passion. That's what I do today. People always ask, do you miss acting? I'm like, you know, directing is far more interesting to me, and I have somehow by being a waiter and a camp counselor and a recovering actor, I have skills to talk to people, and that's my favorite part of the job is talking. So that takes me to being a director, For a while, I was a director and an actor, and that just became too confusing for people to hire a known director in an acting role. And I'm like, all those big guys I was going up against, they need the work. I get to go direct. So that's how I just got into directing.
0: So how did you get your opportunity to write and produce and direct Pulp Fiction? I was doing improv and sketch writing, and then I went to see um, Pulp Fiction, and I loved
2: it. And then I saw the sort of common themes and styles of Tarantino after watching Reservoir Dogs. And so I decided to write a movie that spoofed independent movies only. And so I saw Reservoir Dogs in the beginning of January, and by the middle of February, I had a script. And it's about three – it takes on three stories. Um, It takes on uh, Pulp Fiction it takes on the Reservoir Dogs. And then it takes on Natural Born Killers, which was written by Tarantino, but then directed by Oliver Stone. So I use those three movies as the three different movies. And then, you know, there's the Forrest Gump character played by Don Castaneda, who's kind of a simple guy and just, he's like lively like a box of chocolates. And um, Sandy Bernhardt played the writer. And so they're trying to send the script to the set, and, and Forrest Gump gets hit by a car, and it gets thrown up in the air, and all the pages are out of order, and that's sort of the premise of the whole movie, and I spoof other movies in it, but I decided to have it read, and what I did was sort of hard to get in in Hollywood, so I staged a reading that I paid for out of my waiter's tips. I went to a, a place called Raleigh Studios, and I rented like a, a studio, so you had to drive on with a gate and stuff, so it felt kind of impressive. And then I had all my improv students, and some of them had nice clothes. And I said, so here, dress up in your nice suit, or in your dress suit, and then come. I'm going to give you cards, and you're going to pretend to be producers, whom after the reading – come up and I'll give you my attention first. And so the reading was really well. Josh Mostel was in the reading and, you know, the son of Zero Mostel and a fine actor in his own right. And Kathy Kinney, this was before she was Mimi and a bunch of people read. And um, it was a really, really timely, because it was happened so quick after and, uh, and really funny script. And I invited a couple of producers and maybe three of them showed up. And one of them was from Rhino Pictures Um, And so they wanted to talk to me after the reading, which had gone so well, and I just made them wait, and I went and talked to my friends and said, just give me that card, and I took it, and they were like, who's that? And I'm like, oh, just another independent creation company. How are you doing today, guys? What's going on? So I tried to create a little buzz. It worked, and Rhino Pictures, with the help of a guy named Gary Pinko, um, we were inking the deal right away, and when I was writing down, signing the contracts, they said, uh, oh, wait, wait, we need your reel. And I just finished signing. I said, I don't have a director's reel. I said, so I'll, I'll tell you this. When you come to, the, come to the set the first day, and if I suck, you have a new director standing right there. They can come in and direct. Just come and watch what I do. Because I was prepared because I just know stuff. I know some filmmakers. I worked on sets as an actor. The bad directors I worked with were great teachers teaching me what not to say to actors. And I was really prepared. So they showed up first day of shooting for two hours and sort of... It came by uh, occasionally, but they would—they just let me do my thing. And so that's the story of how Plump Fiction got made. And Plump Fiction became a, uh, an item in all of the uh, uh, rags, the uh, entertainment rags out here in variety and stuff, because it was a funny title. It was Rhino Pictures' first movie. And then in the middle of that, they picked up uh, Fear and Loathing in Los Angeles with Benicio Del Toro and Johnny Depp. And then my smart little, funny little movie became The Redheaded Stepchild because that was a flashier project. Even though I had some, you know, comedy names in mind, it was all comedians who were playing the roles. So, but I got to write a movie. I got to direct my own movie. I got to edit it. And then they changed the edit, of course. That's what they do. And then it got four-walled in theaters across the country. I basically made a movie, And it was, I hear, I just was driving past the Beverly Theater here in Los Angeles. And it turns out that occasionally it's the midnight show. There's a, they called it a cult movie. I'm like, okay, (laughs) that's awesome. But that's how I got it made.
0: Tell me about the cast. I mean, because like you said, everybody is somebody and it's really amazing to see all of this talent in one film. Sandra Bernhardt, I owe her a debt of gratitude because she read the script.
2: I knew of her. And then introduced to her, and she probably didn't even remember, but she read the script and she liked it. And she's playing Bunny, which is uh, the role in the diner who picks up the gun and screams, everyone get down, you motherfuckers, or whatever. So uh, she signed on, and that, because of Sandra Bernhardt, that gave the movie momentum. And then Dan Castellaneta plays the Forrest Gump character and uh, all these great uh, comic actors. Jennifer Coolidge who has gone on to things like, you know, clueless. And she's also on uh two broke girls. She's, she is literally a comic genius. And I wanted her to play the role of the head stripper uh, and they gave it to Rubens, whatever her name is. I forget her. I'm sorry. <laughs> Jennifer Rubens. And Jennifer was a name somehow to the company that they thought would sell. And she was okay. She was not really in her element because she's more of a dramatic actress. But uh Coolidge did me a solid and played one of the nuns. And it, it was a great experience. So I just word of mouth and also because I'm an improv comedian and performing at that time at the improv you know you just find your way it was a really amazing experience to suddenly have people that I respected as comedians and actors come in and and be in a movie and you know it is a little movie and it's very specific to the independent world and the world of Tarantino but it was a really fantastic experience for me
0: well, it sounds like you're really in your element working with all of these different comedians, you having taught improv and worked with improv actors for so long. It must have been pretty much a dream job to be able to do this, especially as your first big project.
2: Yeah, and, and you know, it was low budget, and uh, there are some constraints there. But, you know, look, today I work as a director my acting days are over, not because, I mean, I loved acting, but, you know, my skill set I discovered when I directed my first episode of the Drew Carey show. Like, it went so well. I shadowed and watched and did all the prep I could. But then in the end, you can watch all you want. You have to fucking get behind the camera and then start working. And so uh, it went so well that, that they put me on the list of directors for the show on the Drew Carey Show, and Bruce Helford also is currently the um, Bruce and uh, Dave Kaplan. Anyway, the three co-executive producers were on the Drew Carey Show, so that turned out to be a really great experience, so I skipped to work, dude. I have the best job in the world. I get to direct stuff and help people make it laugh. I love doing comedy. Somehow I have this understanding of comedy that just came over the years, I guess, or also from watching television as a kid, just watching comedies all the time, that I am um, living my dream, which is awesome.
0: Well, how did the movie change? What was that first edit versus what we see now? It was all about budget. The small, lower the budget,
2: the longer pre-production should be, so you can make sure that every dollar gets up on the screen. It was tough because I look back and watch that movie. I don't think I moved the camera very much at all. I was documenting the script and hoping that the comedy of the script was going to, you know, win out. And it's it is. I mean, there are some people. It's sometimes way too inside for people to enjoy. But the people who who love it get it and are and in it. But uh, I used to, when the producers were there and they say, you have to hurry up, and, you know, I would have pretend fights with my DP uh, Rex, and I'd say I have to do this. Just go behind it. Let's walk away for a second. And then I would I'd finish it by going, okay. He goes, yes, sir. And I go, great. And I said, I took care of it. And he goes, no, it's all good. Great. Good job, Bob. And I was just saying, not take your time, but move as quickly as possible. But apparently we need to move quicker. So my being an improv actor and a recovering actor, too, helped me act. You know, some situations on a set are tr- truly just about power or diplomacy, or lack of money, or, you know, there's also stars having a hard time, and I was blessed that no one had a hard time on the, they were just happy to do it, because there was something cool about spoofing Tarantino. It was just time and, and money, but it's still, you know, it's a pretty basic movie when you look at it, um, but I'm really proud of it. And I also realized this, that um, look, I shot my script, I really wish I had done a punch. <laughs> With a bunch of my comic, and my comic writer friends, it was just it all just moved so quick because you know I'm funny, I'm good, but I'm not the last word in it. And one of my favorite things about working in television is that we try it, then they rewrite it because we do. I do multi cameras, and they keep rewriting it, and I love that process of making it better. We were just running and gunning, so we were just getting what I got, and I think it could have used sort of a sharper script, and I think it could have used a punch. Hindsight might be twenty twenty, but I'm just grateful that it all happened and that I was able to complete every stage. You know, it was shown in theaters and all this stuff. So, then I have a great a debt of gratitude to everybody who worked on that movie with me because we, you know, it was really exciting
0: because we didn't have enough time. <laughs> so, we're like, great, let's go over here and we'll just sit that here and all this stuff. So, well, fortunately, you kept a lot of it to that one location, which I imagine helped out quite a bit.
2: Yes, the warehouse was really fantastic, and um, there were other interiors. But we had it was a studio down on Olympic. I wonder if it's still there. We spent most of our days there and changing that warehouse, and uh, that gave me the appreciation for especially when there's no money and people are you know just trying to work, and then they love the project. It was nice to see people have ideas, and that's the thing I love the most. My version of anything, especially if I wrote it. I, just, I love to collaborate, and I also know how to fight for what I feel necessary, and that's another part of filmmaking that's sometimes you're just so grateful you're making a movie. You're like, you also need to step up and you know, strap on a pair and um, know what to know. I always say this to young filmmakers, ask for five things and be willing to give up three so you get the two you really want so it sounds like you're collaborating with them. And then you fight really hard for the things that they're trying to take away. Then you just go, okay, fine, that's fine. Okay, I, I hear you, I get it. It's fine. I didn't really want them in the first place. Then they go, Bob's kind of a good guy. He's, oh, I'm giving, giving out all my secrets. Bob's a good guy. He, he's collaborative. And I know how to play the game back a little bit. And I don't know where I got that. Maybe just because I'm from Jersey. I don't know.
0: But that's a really important element, of, especially doing an independent feature. Well, how was the movie received when it came out? Oh, people hated it. It got like it got slammed.
2: Because here's what happened too, and I'm not making excuses. I'm so grateful it got made. Fear and Loathing in um, Las Vegas was a much bigger and sexier project than my movie. But my movie sort of got them a little notice at um, Rhino Pictures, and so my my movie languished for a while. If they had turned it around and released it right away, when all the, you know, and by the time they released it, even though. I wrote my movie before it was spoofed on places like Saturday Night Live. Movies take time. So by the time the fall came and they released it, every SNL did spoofs on it. Everyone had done spoofs on it. So some of it was similar material. And then whether it was original, you know, the good stuff was just still felt derivative because it had been out there for a while. So I also think that because it was such a basic movie relying on just sort of the, the script so first of all, the camera work was not as skillful at all as Tarantino. You know what I mean? He's got this great film style and things you, you can always count on. There's always going to be some conversation about something like, in, you know, the Big Mac and Pulp Fiction when they're on their way to some dire situation, you know, and uh, like watching movies like Kill Bill and all this stuff. He's just so great and inglorious bastards and the Hateful Eight. I mean, they're so good because he knows what he wants to say and how he wants to do it. I was just imitating someone who was a cool filmmaker, but didn't have the
0: budget to, or time to do really interesting shots. So, um, you mentioned before the whole idea of you know punching it up and the way that television works. And I'm I'm curious when it comes to something like a I don't know Wanda at Large or the Drew Carey Show or I mean you've directed. Hundreds and hundreds of episodes now of, of episodic TV. How long before I don't want to say the cameras roll, but before things start being shot, are things locked down? Because I love the format; it's a combination of theater, and you know, you capture it all at once.
2: You know, I know how to block for cameras, so the, the quicker I, the more efficient I am in my craft, the more creative I can be within it. There's a template for all of multicam shows you know, basically I always call, say to any new director, um, when you get hired by the pizzeria, make sure you deliver the, the their kind of pizza first. Don't go in and be an auteur. Don't go in and say, I'm going to do an open calzone. No, no, you're going to make a fucking pizza and you need to look at what ingredients go on it. And you need to sh- be able to reassure them that you can deliver what they want. And then eventually, you know, I think I, I was, I did anger management with Charlie Sheen, which is also with Bruce Helford. And, uh, because there's a shorthand, and I know what Bruce wants, that we get to. But there's, you know, there's rewrites every, every night. Even when I work on the Connors, those scripts come in really strong, and then they still changes because sometimes things are too long or things. There's a lot of rolling with the punches, and there's also knowing your craft, and then there's also working with stars who just, even though I feel like it works the way we're in the direction we're headed. And then someone turns and says, Bob, this feels uncomfortable. I go, okay, cool. Let's, um, so let's go again from the top and I can change what I do because TV is a, a writer's medium, not a director's medium. Film is a director's medium. So we take the script and I'm like, yeah, let's just change this, make, make this, this, uh, this page more conversational. And the writer's oftentimes not there. So you just run it back and forth and it's the same gist. Well, in TV They've they've been up to 2 in the morning trying to decide whether it's boysenberry or blueberry pie. They argue about it, which is funnier. So I do not change the script. I have lots of ideas, and I'll pitch things on the fly. Like, I'll go up to the room and say, hey, so we're finding a couple of things. Do you want to see the scene as written, or do you want to see what we came up with? And they said, do you think it was better? I'm like, it sounds better, but I don't know. Let me just show it to you guys. So that kind of collaboration, I still deferred to writers, but with improv training, I don't get thrown. When things change, I'm like, great, let's just go and change it. But when it changes, it's important that someone's in charge, who's comfortably in charge when things suddenly change. And because I have improv training, that is a huge gift to me because I can go, great,
0: let's do this. And people say, don't you ever get rattled? I'm like, it doesn't help. It's not going to get this made any better. So, so I was going to ask if you still write, and It sounds like you kind of do, but it's more like on the fly almost. Poor Bob, you know, it's an embarrassment of riches for me because I'm so busy to be working.
2: And like right now I'm on a self-imposed break of six weeks because I want to take care of some shit in my life, like get my car to the dealership so they can service it and stuff. And when I'm working, I am so all in. I'm so excited. It's a real passion for me. You know, I'm maybe one day when I'm older, it'll be oh, I'm going to work. But I don't go to go to work. I, every, and that's what television is so exciting. In one week, we create 22 minutes play that we capture, that changes, and people get recast, and suddenly some scenes getting cut, and all this stuff. And that is when I thrive most because I love that sudden change and I love maintaining equilibrium as a director and calming everyone down when things are changing and getting it done. I, and I, like I say, I love my job. So I'm a very lucky, man.
0: So once you're back off of your break where you're taking care of your, your car and all that stuff, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> What's next for you?
2: The Connors is being picked up for a second season and, um, I'm hoping to be doing a lot of those, and we'll see. You know, Hollywood is—you're always in the room of uh, broken promises, and it's not a bad thing. But just have to remember that things change. You know, opinions change. So I am lucky enough that I have work on another show. I did a pilot for Netflix. Went back to do another episode of that. I have an offer to do a pilot, and so I am (laughs) really lucky. And then I'm hoping to take some time off this summer, but here I am like, poor Bob wants a break from his, but what tends to happen is once the fall hits, then I, it's really the challenge for me is to, is to make sure I take time for myself. And, and that's, that's an uptown problem to have. And I'm always aware of it and I never take it for
0: granted. So. Bob, thank you so much for your time. It was a real pleasure talking with you. It's a pleasure talking with you too. And thank you for asking me. Once in a great while, a film is so important
1: that it captures the attention of the entire world. <laughs> Yo, what's up, bro? This is not one of those films. The, 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 the no, no. Ah! Ah! My big, fat, independent movie. The hitman.
0: Daddy's a little confused here. Why'd you have to break down daddy's door? Oh. Huh?
1: The Swinger.
0: We're pulling the botched robbery in Vegas, so get your guns out of that guitar case and let's hit the road.
4: The Not-So-Good Girl.
1: I'll have sex with you if you don't tell my husband.
0: Tell hey, your husband what?
1: you want to have sex or not? Together. Why are we taking her hostage? She didn't do anything.
0: We're going to forge an unlikely bond with her, idiot. They'll discover. Action. No, that's just wrong. Culture. Hablas Espanol?
1: Francais? Que? Que?
0: Mystery. Have I told you about my condition? What are you doing? I thought you were only supposed to have one of those. I also have this memory thing. Romance. Lick the creases.
2: Lick the cre... Oh, you know, I'll hit that knob. I'll oh, lick my little hole. Oh, no, you didn't.
1: Oh, and did we mention lesbians?
2: It's not sexual. It's artistic. It's artistic.
1: It's artistic. You know what they say? lesbians
0: better than email this Hanukkah oh
1: Jesus
0: Christ we're taking the highbrow world of independent film no! to all new lows oh no a midget and a fancy sequence so cliched not to mention degrading for the midget dwarf little person I'm sorry my big fat independent movie
2: Ah, oh, this is bollocks! I thought this
3: was a Guy
0: Ritchie film! Alright, we're back and we're talking about Plump Fiction. So, surprisingly, while I was doing my research about this movie and other uh, Pulp Fiction movies, I found that there are a ton of parody films, uh, or parodies, I should say, of Pulp Fiction. I was very surprised to see how many porno films there are of Pulp Fiction with, like, Erotic fiction, which I think is kind of cheap, but pulp friction. I was very happy about that. Seems like there was at least one other one where I was just like, oh, I might have to check this one out. But then, like, it would show up, like, little moments would show up in, like, Spy Hard and other films. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the other ones. Like, even, God, even things like, I don't know, Shanghai Noon and stuff would have little nods to pulp fiction. It was, parodied everywhere and of course i remember you know like things like the simpsons and other cartoon shows and mad tv you know everybody seemed to want to get in on it
3: the thing told me about this movie is by the time this movie came out that whole royale cheese royale but cheese speech had been done to death you know and there's just there was like nowhere else to go with it and and it, it, you could tell it just- It's like it just thuds in this movie because it's like the the millionth time this joke is done and then they keep hitting it. Like, you know, there's like bits of the like throughout the movie where it's like, do you want to know what's Venezuelan for cockroach? You know, it's just like this dead joke that they keep just like digging up and reviving and, you know, just dies again.
4: I mean, it just shows you how impactful Pulp Fiction was to see so many parodies from cartoon TV shows to you know other films, but but also it's to me the brilliance of uh, Tarantino's writing. Uh, you know, I mean, having just seen once upon a time in Hollywood now twice, um, and I happen to love it because it you know recaptures an era, but also the fact that Tarantino will allow a scene to breathe' We're in a movie, you know, which I mean look, Hollywood has become factory filmmaking now. It's all Marvel, Star Wars, Pixar, Disney, this, this is, and then, and then you've got these other studios that aren't owned by by Disney. That's pretty much where the industry's gone. And uh, Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola coined the term factory filmmaking to see like Tarantino do something, be able to do something like once upon a time in Hollywood. I'm sure at some point we'll talk about it more on the show, but like those scenes where characters have conversation, just like people maybe used to do in real life i do find it really interesting that tarantino in interviews when he was asked his favorite period of time to make films um to set his films in and um he answered any time before cell phone and i do think that there's something to that when you look at modern cinema how much it's how how, how challenging it is for writers to write have to write around having a cell phone solve a problem right i mean are black mirrors that we all own uh, or that own us at, at this stage. I, I don't know which. Um, I think the jury's out on how damaging social media and these devices can be. But uh, now let me just take my tinfoil hat off for a second. I find that really interesting. And just, um, you know, having those conversations breathe, you see that, like, that was the impact. that like, this, I mean, and look, I, might, I also made a parody that, that includes a Pulp Fiction thread that runs throughout, you know? with a meaningless story that you don't really care about. It's just to see, like, try to name a filmmaker that's been as impactful in the modern age, and, and Tarantino is it. So here we are talking about plump fiction, which would have been a parody, and there's so many bad parody films that exist. You know, here we are talking about it, because Cause Tarantino's, Tarantino is still relevant, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has made, in its opening weekend, more money than any Tarantino movie uh, opener has
3: ever. Yeah. Okay. You did do a, 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 a like a Tarantino parody, but you didn't fall into the same traps that other like parody movie parody parody things have done. Like you didn't you didn't do the Royale Cheese speech. You know, I don't think you did the slow mo walk thing. I don't think that was in there. So you avoided you 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 avoided all of those like sort of like you know easy cliches with the parodies. So I you know the, I, I'll say that. Now, if I could just say something very quickly about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I love that movie, but I loved it probably in the same shallow way people would love a Marvel movie. And I, I say that because I reacted to that the way I react to a Marvel movie. So if there's like the Golden Age Human Torch, I'm like, oh, and in that, you have like <laughs> the old one sheets for candy and Michael Sarn's Joanne. I was like, oh, my God. And there was I actually said this in a the theater when there was a fake Mad Magazine cover, they're panning up to it. I, I said, "Holy shit, a Mad Magazine!" So, and I'm like, I, I, I lost my shit when the, the Manson girls are singing "Always Is Forever," and I, I, my appreciation for What's Upon Time in Hollywood was very, very <laughs> fucking shallow. So I I don't I have nowhere to go with that. I just wanted to say that
4: it sure it certainly did play on um our love of nostalgia, which so much of this is now. I mean. I mean, Star Wars movies are, you know, the, the checklist of Star Wars movies used to be checklist. There's one thing to check in the box, fun. And now it's, it's gotta be all these different things and uh serve some other social and political agendas, which I think are just unnecessary. It's just nice to see something that's pure. Like I'm going to go against what's out in the zeitgeist. Cause I want to make something that transcends the period in which it was made. And, and uh, that's what I appreciate about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it's it's m- even more enjoyable upon second viewing. I'll just say that. So I'm not sure, Mike, if you intended for this to derail to talk about that film. Uh, but I think it just it, it, it definitely warrants uh, disgusting because uh, Tarantino doesn't make a movie every year. His output is not consistent that way. but. I'm so glad to see him at the top of his game.
0: Well, you mentioned money, and it's still remarkable to me that Pulp Fiction was made for roughly $8, 8500000 million, dollars, and it brought in over $200 million. I mean, just, it was such a cash cow, such a hit when it came out, and this is 1994 money that we're talking about, and just how much, you know, that's why we're talking about this parody of Pulp Fiction all of these years later that it made such a huge impact on stuff and really helped bring about the independent film movement. I mean, yes, there were independent films before and there'll be independent films after, but it really put a spotlight on this whole movement, for lack of a better term, of independent films and then brought about, you know, some of it was good, some of it was bad. I mean, there are some movies that came out in the wake of it that were just kind of like Tarantino knockoff, you know, things like, uh, love to 45 or Truth or Consequences New Mexico. Some of those have good things about them, not all of them. It was interesting to see what was coming out in the wake of that. But yeah, Chris, I did want to talk a little bit about My Big Fat Independent Movie, which does kind of, I would say that, um, you know, it's kind of the Pulp Fiction is kind of like the backbone of the film, and then you kind of hung other things off of it. And I was very curious how you how you even started with that project and why you decided to do the parody of independent films at the time.
4: The real motivation for doing it was,
0: I felt like at the
4: time, and this was in the, like around 2003, 2004, that... Independent film was dead and dying. I mean, the financial models didn't make it easy for independent films to get made. Even though technologically speaking, things were changing in in favor of indie film. It was just so expensive to get an indie film made and marketed. I thought, well, this genre is kind of dead. And I, and I kind of felt like inspired by frankly, Blazing Saddles and Mel Brooks that when a genre is dead, that's the time to make, that's the time to make a parody movie. You know, um, if you're gonna, if you're, it's as a way to kind of comment on the entire genre uh, taken as a whole. So, so that was the motivation behind doing it. And we had kind of strict rules, like, you know, at the beginning, it was like, okay, we don't want this to be episodic, like a series of sketches. We want it to be, you know, what's what's the biggest cliche in indie film, and it's road movies, right? So let's make a road movie, and the two hitmen are going on a uh, on 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 the road to pull a botched robbery in Vegas. I mean, it's utterly ridiculous as a concept. But then, of course, it's that that road trip is just an opportunity for them to run, you know, run into other characters that are from independent films. Everything from you know, uh, El Mariachi, Amelie, um, uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, all of that. You know, when I looked at like My Big Fat Greek Wedding was being praised as like this great indie movie produced by tom hanks's wife right like that's not really an independent film and so this was a chance to kind of make fun of the genre and be a little bit ambitious you know there's an animated title sequence but we did have rules of like well these are this is the list of movies that we're gonna we're gonna make fun of which were the you know indie films that have been the most successful or the ones that you would recognize and then i i cut together this like little sizzle reel of scenes from all those movies it was about 10 minutes of the the scenes and and everyone that got involved in the production got like this binder uh that had um color xeroxes of key scenes from those films and then a vhs paper dvd that i would give out that had like uh the title song sort of a demo track of the title song and then like this montage of about 10 minutes of scenes from those key indie films so that everyone was on the same page production-wise and just sort of tone-wise. And then I think the, the glue that really holds it together is Paget Brewster from uh, uh, the Andy Richter show. And, I mean, Padgett Brewster, you can look her up on IMDb. I and mean, she's done so many great comedic shows. Um, yeah. And she was really, like, I had her in mind from the beginning. She was the only person that was, like, cast before I even approached her because I met her at Comic-Con. And we, you know, I don't remember if we were on some panels together, but I know we hung out. And then it was like I'm gonna make a film with her as the lead. Uh, That was the inspiration.
3: Chris didn't like Film Threat release that uh, Agent 13? Those movies she did—they were like short films. Did they release it on DVD? Yeah, we did. We released it. We we had this
4: deal with indie filmmakers where they would come to us, and we would help them market their movies. So we had a a whole line of DVDs. I think we had like 30 uh, in our library at at its height. And that's that's kind of how I met her. And I think it was at the Comic Con International Film Festival, which took place during San Diego Comic Con, I helped organize that. Just basically get the word out to filmmakers, create some parameters, organize the panels and whatnot. Now it's this big thing that, like, you know, I guess I could attend it, but I don't get invited anymore. But that's all right. That's I'm used to. I'm used to that. That's kind of how I met us through that Agent Thirteen project, and then and then uh, I don't know. I just love Padgett Brewster. She really had a comedic sense. She was great at improv. She cared. Um, I remember having some problems during the movie that were actually ended up making the movie better because she really wanted to see certain things go a certain way. There was a musical number that was going to get cut. She insisted that we include it. So we, we brought in like a dance instructor to choreograph it, which was ridiculous you know look I can't if i if I looking back honestly on uh, my big fan independent movie I would give myself maybe a c plus c minus on it um, on a, on a scale maybe a six or a seven still barely fresh on rotten tomatoes um because there's some things that work and then things that don't work i think I think ultimately um my big fan independent movie might've benefited from a 77 minute running time rather than a 90 minute running time. So I think that there are parts of it that drag, but you know, you learn these things in retrospect and ultimately what I wanted to do with that was kind of put a nail in the coffin of independent film by making a parody movie. And then secondly, I wanted to learn how to produce a movie and go through that process myself. And I'm fortunate enough to have been on many sides of the entertainment industry, producer, screenwriter, worked at a film festival as a program director for a couple of years. So and produced some DVDs. So I and then also you know Mike, how you and I met. Uh, uh, Mike White and I met. Well, we do wait. we know, we we met after you were supposed to appear on a on a TV show, IFC's Ultimate Film Fanatic. So um, which I'm really sad that how that whole thing went down but uh, i'm glad you know years later here we become friends but yeah no it's um it, it gave me a lot of perspective and appreciation uh for independent film for sure you know i i don't know, you know I know i i also i have not watched my big fan independent movie in years in years i i certainly have given enough free dvd's out to friends that have to see it but i have not seen it in a long time probably since it was first released on dvd so um, I I can't say whether or not that the movie holds up. So yeah, it just shows you that how hard it is to do a parody film that stands the test of time. I think Spaceballs stands the test of time. I think I think I think anything that Mel Brooks has done stands the test of time. Honestly, and Blazing Saddles I think is just is is a, a modern classic. Although I'm not sure how modern audiences would would take that film. Many things would trigger. I think I I foresee a lot of triggers. In, in that film did you have big
3: plans for that finale uh, with like the enormous mexican standoff
4: i had a, a friend of mine uh, david manos morris worked at ilm and uh at first i came to him i said oh, i've got maybe five or ten special effects shots and then it ended up ballooning to 50 special effects shots things like replacement of billboards things like the el mariachi uh you know getting hit by a car to that, yeah. I mean that that ambitious. It was it was very ambitious. It was something you know I came up with like how are we can end this movie. It's like here's how you do this. It was written in the script, and I kind of had to draw out the storyboard. You know, there, there are certain sequences that, as I mean, I I feel as writer producer of that film, I definitely crossed the line into working in a collaborative way with the director. Like, here's how we can do this with no money, and I think yeah. that when you're doing things on an independent scale, you have to be creative because money is the last thing that will solve a problem for you. Yeah, I mean, it was just like, okay, let's just do it as like a thing from above. Like, it's just a map, and it's just like a simple thing, like a fuse going off. It was like a fuse. That's how that was achieved.
0: I have to say it's funny that you came to Paget Brewster through her comedy. I mostly know her from her serious work when she was in Criminal Minds, and she was deadly serious. And then when I started to see her show up on Drunk History, I was like, Oh my God, she can play comedy as well. And then when I was rewatching my Big Fat Independent Movie over the weekend, I was like, Oh yeah, I forgot she plays. Not only is she the Jennifer Aniston character, but she, she kind of flips into other movies as well. So that was kind of nice to see her move throughout a, a bunch of movies and kind of always come back to that good girl character.
1: Yeah, the
4: Bjork Bjork's pretty
0: good. Yes, the Bjork is amazing.
4: I, I love her on Drunk History too. She's just um, you know having been to her house for a couple of parties. She is someone who has impeccable taste and she's a great conversationalist on many topics. So seeing her turn up in drunk history is, is great. She, um, I've always just always thought of her as being underutilized in almost anything that she's, she's been in. But yeah, I'm not as familiar with her, with her serious work. I'm, I guess I'm just not a procedural guy. You know, those procedural TV shows just there to me, they just sort of leave me like, eh, it's all going to end up the same. Um, but, but yeah, like, uh, that, that's funny. We, we see her career differently.
0: I did appreciate that you kind of had a wider scatter when it comes to the number of movies that you were looking at and taking aim at in, in my big fat independent movie, because there were a lot of them where I was just like, okay, I think I know what this is. And then it would take a few seconds for it to really kind of register. Like for a second there, you have a character who's parodying uh, Sex, Lies, Videotapes. I think the character's name is Spader. And I was thinking that you're going for Wes Bentley in American Beauty. And I was like, oh, wait, no. He's asking your personal questions about having sex and uh, her face when she orgasms. I was like, okay, now I get it. I, I was waiting for him to turn around and there'd be like a plastic bag floating someplace. <laughs> yeah, you know,
4: we, we did our best to try to work in as much of these as possible. But I think the thing that helped us was Really having that prep with the, um, the, the the binder, you know, of all these exact, I mean, you know, down to like trying to parody the lighting and the color, you know, um, I, I, I'm not saying whether or not we succeeded or it was great. But the, the really good um, parody stuff, I think, is on um, when the MTV Movie Awards used to be good, when MTV used to be good, remember a long time ago? the mtv now it's just garbage reality shows but but at the mtv movie awards there was effort that was put in to do these perfect parodies that's expensive down to getting the right props to matching the lighting and the color correction to things now that you know they're i'm sure they're less expensive to do today but but boy I, i think there was no one better at doing the um those parodies Then the MTV movie awards and the two writers that I collaborated with had worked as writers on the MTV movie awards and I found them at a film festival. They did, they did a a short parody film and, and then we partnered up to, to work on, work on the script. I I would say that one of the sequences I am most proud of is that montage where Paulie Shore gets obliterated. And he's just like killed. And I don't think he knew exactly what we were going to do, but I met him at a film festival because he made an indie movie and he was a nice enough guy. I mean, that's how I got Bob Odenkirk to actually be in the film as well. Like we're all just going to film festivals and then kind of cashing in whatever favors, like, Hey, would you mind being in my movie for scale? And so that's how Paulie Shore was in the movie. And then Bob Odenkirk, we literally shot him in 30 minutes. But the idea was he, he's in the trunk of the two hit men where, He's dying like Tim Roth's character from Reservoir Dogs, but he actually pays rent and lives in the trunk. So he's technically in the whole movie as a disembodied voice, but um, and there's a couple scenes every time they open up Odenkirk in the trunk, in that bleeding outfit, but positioned like Tim Roth's character in, in Reservoir Dogs. So um, that was fun. It was done in 30 minutes. He came to the home of the two producers. He was on a flight, so he had a heart out. He He did the scene. And I remember, I think there's on the DVD of my big fan independent movie, I'm actually really proud of, because there's so many extras and Easter eggs on it. Literally, if you if you move the cursor through every menu screen, you will find like something hidden. Um, but he, he, we, we have all these like outtakes of him. And the one thing he kept doing, I couldn't, was, was great. Was the director, Phil Zlotorinsky would slam the trunk. He'd slam it harder. Like, just go for it. Don't like, <laughs> don't like, like every scene just like, go, go, come on. And then he had to take, I mean, he was covered. And of course that caro syrup blood concoction. So he had to take a shower and then he got a shower, shook hands and took off. It was on a, he was on a flight, but he did it in 30 minutes got paid scale and was a perfect gentleman um, and a joy to work with. He was awesome. But one of my favorite Easter eggs, which I'm not sure if anyone has found because I've never gotten anything about this, but there's like, I put my personal email address like on the DVD. There's like all these like little Easter eggs, but the one Easter egg I'm really proud of is um, it's all the outtakes from the scene where the character from Memento is getting ass fucked. We did the outtakes. I mean, it's a long outtake, of all of that, like minutes and minutes of footage of him getting fucked in the ass by this dude and it's, all it it is, there's a title screen that comes up and it says typical independent film distribution deal, and then it's like 10 minutes of this guy getting fucked in the ass, so that's, that's one of the Easter eggs that's on the uh, double disc edition that Anchor Bay really just let me go crazy with um, in terms of extras so I was really, I was really proud of that. What I was trying to do with the DVD was actually do a parody of special edition DVDs that have a ton of special features. One, one of actually the special features is behind the behind the scenes. All it is is like a security cam shot of a guy editing the behind the scenes,
3: and it's like you <laughs>
4: see it's like day one. Day two, he barely moves. He's just editing the behind the scenes. You see like ten seconds, twenty seconds, then it fades. Day two, same thing. Day three, then you see him smell his his armpit, right? And then day four comes up and he's wearing a different shirt. I mean, it's 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 like a, it's like a one minute behind the behind the scenes. But I was trying to mock, you know, the ridiculousness. I think that some
0: special edition DVDs go to parody or to, to, to include special features i'm glad that you're using the term easter egg in the correct way because nowadays it's just like reference means easter egg and i'm just like what are you talking about that's just a reference that's not an easter egg like you have to hunt for an easter egg please come on
3: i, I just wanted to, i really liked the bob odenkirk scene and i i didn't like take it as a direct parody of reservoir dogs i i took it more as like a like a parody of like all the Tarantino ripoffs because there's, it seems like in all the ripoffs, there's a guy in a trunk somewhere. Like there's a guy in a trunk. <laughs> right, bleeding right. Yeah. yeah. And that's, and, and of course I love Bob Odenkirk. So I, I, I love the with Bob Odenkirk in that.
4: Well, there's pl- on the DVD, there's plenty of that. There's a whole sequence of, of that. And then try to include like, well, what would I want on this thing? So I think, I think I would actually rank the DVD maybe a little higher than the movie itself and there are movies like that. I mean, almost every trauma movie, the, um, the, if, if the commentary track include Lloyd Kaufman, just makes it all that much better because having interviewed and spoken to Lloyd in the past, and I'm sure Mike, you have as well. I mean, he's such a great, he's such a, he's such a, a, a real life indie film legend and hero of mine. So, um, I just love uncle Lloyd. So, so yeah. So sometimes like there are like, I mean, having reviewed DVDs for years, I mean, not that DVDs are a thing anymore. I mean, it's, it's that sort of spiraled into, I mean, even I buy things just digital, right? You just buy it digital. I mean, it's, I mean, you're going to get all the extras. Now that the extras are on digital, that's what converted me finally. There are some movies that come along where you're like, oh, well, God, the, the DVD extras are better than the movie. Uh, when Bruce Campbell would ever do com- uh, commentary or behind the scenes or getting a glimpse into how a certain, filmmaker works i mean i'm not sure what the data says about people actually watching the extras but i watch all those extras and i'm sure you guys would do as well
3: oh yeah yeah absolutely yeah
0: yeah definitely i mean there are a lot of movies where i'm just like okay yeah i've got the movie file or i can you know get the real cheap disc but i really want this commentary so thank goodness for stuff like dvd beaver because amazon sucks when it comes to actually saying what's on a disc It's like, especially when there's something where it's like, oh, there are about 15 different versions of this movie and good luck finding the one with the extras or the most extras. And like, I'm looking at comparison charts on DVD Beaver and going like, okay, well, I can live without that, but I really want this one. And okay, yeah, it looks like I have to buy the uh, Region 3 French disc from uh, Zimbabwe or something. So it's like, okay, now I know where I can get this. Then yeah, good luck trying to find it.
4: Uh, well, you know, if you have an all-region DVD player, that that sure comes in handy.
0: And then if you can actually order stuff from overseas, that that's even better. All right, guys, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. How'd you hurt your arm? I said Me too. I'll tell you a story. Close your eyes. There were five of them the Indian, the ex slave, an explosive expert, Charles Darwin, and the masked bed. They had one common enemy Governor Odious. Is Odious Batman? Oh, yeah. <laughs> First, I need a favor. You always stop at the same part when it's very beautiful. Do you want me to finish the story? Be a good bandit. When I fall asleep, you gotta go.
1: Why? Mm. I don't
0: want you to see me like this. It's poison. This story was just a trick to get you to do something for me.
1: Wake up. We're making everybody die.
2: We're a strange pair, aren't we? Are you trying to save my (laughs) soul?
0: As right, we'll be back next week with a discussion of Tarsum's the Fall. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts Chris and Mike. So, Mike, how is the cutthroat world of professional mascoting?
3: Well, I'll, I actually met uh, John O'Hurley a few weeks ago. Um, you know that Mister. Uh, Mr. I saw that. Yeah, Mister. Peterman from uh, Seinfeld, and uh, he, uh, I went to fist bump him, and he just like sort of like bumped his like elbow against my elbow, and he just kind of like sighed. You know, he just, he, he was, he was not having, he was bored, but, you know, otherwise it's, you know, it's, it's, it's been very hot and like, you know, chafe inducing and just, you know, rash inducing and just very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable this summer mascotting, uh, for both, a, a a minor league baseball team and a minor league hockey team.
0: Are you doing much writing these days?
3: I'm working on a thing uh, for CinemaSaur right now, and I'm, I'm not sure if that's going to see print, but I am in the latest issue of CinemaSaur. Let me see. It's in 32. I uh, reviewed the Dick Van Patten instructional video, Dirty Tennis. I'm also in uh, the latest issue of Shock Cinema. It's issue 56. I interviewed Sandy Martin from uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and I did you know some reviews of movies and Soon enough, uh, Hobbs and Shaw will be on the Shock Cinema blog, so that's something special for all the uh, fans of the projection booth that I know uh, love my writing. So be on the lookout for that.
0: And Chris, how is Michigan's favorite nerd, Leopardy, doing?
3: How
4: am I doing? The Film Thread website, we just relaunched a, a new design for the site and restored, we were able to restore, got more than 36,000 stories from our archives, dating all the way back to the mid 90s, which is really exciting. So, um, check out filmthreat.com. And then, of course, we have the film threat podcast sometimes twice a week. Uh, we just got back from San Diego Comic Con. So we have an episode from Comic Con. And then I'm with mostly filmmaker interviews. And then the next episode will be like a, a review of, you know, something that uh, we consider worthy of conversation. Uh, but we've had some really good guests, a lot of documentary filmmakers and we had John C. Riley on the podcast uh, among others. If you go into our archives. And then um, uh, working on a couple uh, documentary films, including there's a documentary being made about film threat, tentatively titled "Film Threat Sucks." I'm sort of the facilitator of that project, so uh, that'll be out in a couple years. And I, I guess I can announce there's going to be a um, a book that's going to be coming out sometime in 2020 or early 2021 called "The Worst of Film Threat," and it's a, a coffee table book, basically of Best articles from the old issues of the magazine, including a lot of unpublished material. Sort of a whole story of the history of Film Threat, and then uh, it's not going to be a cheap book, but you will get a digital code to download every issue of Film Threat ever published. We've been working on this project for some time, so uh, look for that book in 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 the near future.
3: Will it be the late boy strips in that?
4: Oh, yes, late boy strip, unpublished art. Like, uh, it's really, we're basically taking the best of what's in the film chart archives, unseen things, kind of giving a glimpse into like old photos, like back in the 90s and 80s of like when the print, it's really like the history of the print magazine from 1985 to 1997. A lot of things that didn't make it there. There were two completely unpublished issues for various reasons, and we just found one of those issues. Uh, which is really exciting. So, um, Robert St. Mary from Detroit, who I think you know, Mike, um, is actually going to be the editor of this book. So, and there'll be some, there'll be some, we're going to get some other interesting people involved in it. Um, it's one of those things that's been a labor of love for a couple of years. So I can't wait for this book to come out. It's just def- definitely catch- capturing like a moment in time when we still fed our movie addiction with, you know, print. You know, through magazines. I mean, I was pretty much a magazine junkie at the time, and now it's, you know, it's all online. So it's really interesting to me to see how spoiled everyone is today. Within two clicks, you know, I find this movie, Plump Fiction. It's like, oh, it's on YouTube. I'm just going to watch it, right? I don't even need to buy yeah. it. But now, but I remember back in the day, and I'm sure Mike White, you remember this too. I would send off for a self addressed stamped envelope to a guy in Florida who would send me inscrutably small type on these bad direct pages and it would be 20 bucks for a vhs bootleg uh, of a movie if you couldn't find it legally right but then then they'd have some deal that was like three for 40 so you'd always spend 40 bucks and i was constantly writing money orders to you know (laughs) weird dudes who were selling lists of movies and you'd wait four to six weeks for delivery i mean it was just like it's just being a movie fan was like being in in the 80s and 90s was like being Indiana Jones, right? Yeah. It was art house theaters or driving to another state to see a film because there was some John Waters ret- retrospective and maybe Glenn Milstead would be there or someone from the film. I mean, I just remember how hard it was to be a film fan in the 80s and 90s where it was going to the DIA, going to the Maple Theater, which was an art house theater. You know, like, and nowadays it's just click, saw it, uh, hate it, boom. I mean, a big movie comes out on Thursday night. Everybody's seen it for bragging rights. On um, The whole Twitterati has decided how, what they think of this movie. And then by Monday, it's who cares about Star Wars or whatever, or Marvel movies are over or whatever it is. It's just incredible to me the bizarre sort of lack of appreciation and, and entitlement from the audience is just mind-boggling when guys like you and I struggled just to see these things so
0: so there you go there's my there's my old also by, by the way get off my lawn well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projectionboothpodcast.com where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation. Yes, I am begging you for your hard earned money. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. <laughs>